Well, good morning. If you are with the children's ministry, there will be some teachers in the back. For the rest of us, we are beginning a new series in the prophet of Amos. Now, just informal question. Raise your hand if you've ever, on a Sunday morning, heard a sermon in the book of Amos. Just raise your hand. I'm just curious. Oh, dude, I could say anything and you wouldn't have any idea. This is going to be great. <laughs> Touche. You're right. You have read it. You, we're, we're good Bereans. I, I. Well, turn with me to the book of Amos. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand and someone will come and bring you a Bible. This week, one author I was reading summarized the entire book of Amos with a question. Three words. Does God care? My guess is that Ukrainians and Russians are asking that very question these days. Does God care? Now, I, th- I think we ask that question most naturally in the midst of trials and hardship and suffering. I got an email this past week about a church in Puyallup who opened up their parking lot to people who live in their cars so that they could sleep safely in the church's parking lot. And so you have men, women, and maybe even sometimes children sleeping in their cars, and they're asking the natural question, Does God care? Or what about us? I mean, does God care about the big things in our life or even just like the trivial things in our lives? Right after Christmas, my wife and I were traveling on a a trip and we got one of those people who got stuck at an airport because of, you know, weather and COVID and everything. And, And so I'm in this long line And I want to get back home. I want to see my kids. I have a sermon to prepare for. I'm stressed out. I'm anxious. And I'm standing in line. And I'm not embarrassed to say it. I began to pray. God, get me home. Get us home. So the question wasn't, did I care? I cared. The question was, did he care? Does God care? Or maybe even broadening out the question, Does God care how we live, how we treat each other, how we interact with each other on social media, how we treat our neighbors? Does God care? My guess is deep down, all of us want God to care. Intuitively, we want God to care about the big things going on in our lives and the little things. We want God to care. To care, but, but but what happens when we actually are the ones in which are perverting justice? What happens when we are the ones who are not treating people with the full dignity that they deserve as image bearers? What happens when we know God's word, read God's word? but don't apply God's word and turn a deaf ear to God's word. 
I mean, it's wonderful. We want God to care when we're like the hero of our story. Question is, do we want God to care when we're acting like the villain in a story? This morning, we're going to look at the prophet Amos. He is one of the 12 minor prophets, which doesn't mean that he has a kind of, that he's minor in the sense that he's unimportant. No, he's very important. He's called a minor prophet because he's one of the 12 that, that his prophetic writings are short. So Amos is nine chapters. One of the major prophets, Ezekiel, is 48 chapters. So turn with me to Amos chapter 1. Amos chapter 1 sets the scene for us. It gives us kind of a historic clues as to what was going on when it was written, the occasion of this prophetic work. And what we're going to find out is that this book, it's all about judgment. So I hope you got a hug before you sat down. There's not going to be a sermonic hug for like 30 minutes, okay? So like, (laughs) grip it and rip it. Here we go. But what I want us to see is that actually, though when we talk about judgment, it's scary, we want to push it out, it's sort of a dirty word in our culture, actually, judgment is the very evidence that God cares. Do you want to know if God cares? Exhibit A, judgment. So does God care? Well, let's find out. Verse 1, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. We'll stop there for a moment. So, what do we know? Amos, we're introduced. This is Amos's prophetic work. And he was from Tekoa, which is located south South of Judah, kind of by the Dead Sea. He was from Judah. And we know that he was a shepherd of some sort. And when we keep reading, when we finally get to chapter 7, we find out that he's not like a professional prophet. All right? So before he was a prophet, right? His father wasn't a prophet. He wasn't a prophet. He worked at a non-profit. That's, that's Amos, okay? And we kind of get the historic clues as to when this was going on, Right? This was the days of King Jeroboam. It says King Jeroboam, but it's King Jeroboam II, in which he was the king in Israel from 793 to 753 B.C. Now, we don't know when this earthquake was. There's, there, there's some historic writing that this earthquake took place, but it's sometime in the reign, probably the middle of the reign of King Jeroboam in Israel. Now, since Amos is from Judah, he would have been seen as he traveled up to Israel as a foreigner, an outsider. Not the sort of person we would think God would use in order to speak prophetically to God's people up north, but that's who God sent. That's who God chose. Now, who who is King Jeroboam II? Well, not much is said of him. Um, We get a little bit in 2 Kings 14, but what we do know is that he, he reigned in unparalleled prosperity. He, he, he ex- expanded the borders to a, a, almost unparalleled reach in Israel's history. 
I mean, these were good times when the king, when King Jeroboam was ruling. I mean, his approval rating, really high. Right? Money was just kind of flowing into the national coffers. Amos actually tells us that, that the rich had several houses. They had like winter houses. That's how good things were going. People had fancy furniture. Money was flowing in faster than they could spend it. It was extravagant prosperity. But even in the midst of that, there was a deep chasm between the haves and the have-nots, between the rich and the poor. And the poor were suffering in Israel. And unfortunately, that suffering was caused, at least in part, by Israel herself. So those were the sort of days of Jeroboam, the days where money came easy, it was all consuming, filled with prosperity. Everything was good. Markets were stable. Recession, didn't, we didn't see that coming in the future. It was all happy, joyful. I mean, isn't God favor the prosperous? All was good in the land. Or so they thought. You see, it's in this context, in the context of prosperity, that Amos is blistering judgment on God's people comes to them. And so Amos speaks, verse 2, look at verse 2. Let me read, the Lord roars from Zion, and he utters his voice from Jerusalem, the pastures of the shepherd mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Have you, have you ever heard a roar? Now, you probably haven't heard a lion's roar, but have you ever been outside when thunder's really close, right? And it just thunder just roars and sort of rips through you. The other night I was dead asleep, and my daughter screamed in her in her sleep. You ever you ever heard that? It's like your just heart keeps pumping. You're you're up. I was up. I couldn't get back to sleep. God roars like that, like a lion. But the unfortunate thing is, it's not a lion at the zoo with bars where it's safe. He roars and the mountains wither. Do you see where he's roaring from? Where God's roaring? From Jerusalem. So at this time in the northern kingdom in Israel, they set up alternative sites of worship. And so here we even get a a hint. God means business with Israel. So Amos speaks, and this roar of the lion goes out as a lion's roar goes out. And so what we have in chapters 1 and 2 that we're going to look at today, I'm not going to sugarcoat it, it is largely about judgment. It's about judgment. And yet in the midst of this judgment that's coming, we're going to see that there is a hint of hope. There is even hope amid this judgment. So the big idea this morning is simply this. God's judgment, it's universal, but there's hope. There is hope even in the midst of the judgment that's coming on God's people. So go to verse 3. Verse 3, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four I will not revoke the punishment. 
because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadid, and I will break the gates of the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon. And him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kerr, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four I will not revoke punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Eshdod and him who holds the scepter from Eshkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron and the remnants of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke punishment because they delivered up whole peoples to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send fire upon the wall of Tyre and it shall devour her strongholds. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because he pursued his brothers with the sword and cast off all pity. And his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send fire upon Taman, and it shall devour the strongholds, strongholds of Basra. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, and they, that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour the strongholds with shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind, and their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the strongholds of Kiriath, and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of a trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst, and will kill all the, its princes with him, says the Lord. We'll stop there. That's good for a second. You, you, you see what's going on here. There's a roll call to the nations surrounding Israel. And the roar of this judgment comes from God like a drumbeat as nation after nation that's surrounding Israel. You could just look geographically on a map and it's just nation after nation that's surrounding Israel. They're called to stand forth and receive the judgment of God. And you'll notice that each Judgment begins and is marked off with the phrase, thus says the Lord. So this isn't Amos' judgment. This is God's. And then we have this roll call of the six surrounding nations of Israel, followed by the repeated phrase, I don't know if you noticed it, but it said, for three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Now, this is a poetic way, right? Amos' prophecies come to us by way of Poetry, so sorry, but God loves poetry, so get used to it. And basically what this is not saying is like, okay, three transgressions, that's okay, but once you hit four, that's when I draw the line. No, that's not what's happening. What, what, what he's saying is the emphasis is on just the multitude of sins. Not just three, but four. There's a multitude of sins. Actually, the stress isn't on 
on, uh, on that, that this is like rushed. The stress actually is on God's patience. That, that God's judgment should come on these nations for one sin, and yet God patiently and is patient with each nation. God waits. It's a sort of a poetic way of saying that God does not rush into judgment. God's judgment always comes late. It comes overdue. So we get this kind of altar call of sorts. The sins of the nations are then listed, each a little bit different. We'll look at them in a second. And then after, there's a description of judgment and what that judgment is. Do you notice a repeated phrase over and over again, six times in this section? Verse 4, I will send fire. Verse 7, I will send fire. Verse 10, I will send fire. Verse 12, I will send fire. Verse 14, I will send fire. Chapter 2, verse 2, I will send, you guessed it, fire. Fire's coming. It's a word prophetically and metaphorically that captures the idea of judgment. Now, what are these sins, the sins of these nations? It's interesting. You would think that the sins of the nations that are listed here would be in their transgression against God, right? These are religious sins, idolatrous sins. You're worshiping other gods. That's not the sins listed here. All the sins listed here are kind of horizontal sins. There are the other nations are treating one another. So these are not sins of religious idolatry. These are sins of social bigotry. They're being judged for how they treat one another. Look look at it. Verse 3. Look at verse 3. Damascus is judged because of her barbarity during times of war. Gaza is judged for their slave trading of total populations. Verse 6. Tyre is judged for breaking promises. Verse 9. Edom is judged for persistent hatred. Verse 11. Ammon is judged. Well, judge for the sickening atrocity against the helpless, particularly pregnant women. Verse 13. And then Moab is judged for how they treated the dead, particularly a foreign king in which they desecrated a body. Chapter 2, verse 1. So God's coming judgment on the nations, it focuses solely on how they're treating one another. So, does God care? Yes. God very much cares how we treat one another. And the evidence that God cares is the judgment that's coming on the nations for their lovelessness. The nations thought they weren't accountable to God. But they are. And God cares. Now, I... I think we need to hear this. I think this comes to us as a warning. Because I think sometimes we think that we, if we just get truth right, we can act like a jerk and get away with it. If we just have our theology right, who cares about our orthopraxy or our application of the truth? Yeah, what's most important is if we love God, secondarily, if I, get, if I have time, if I can get around with it, then how I love my neighbor or how I love others. But we got to sit in this. 
we got to sit in this. And just let me just bring an illustration out from the text. Just think about the case in point of uh, verse 3, Damascus and their judgment. And the judgment that's coming particularly on Hazael, verse 4. Now, he, he was the king in Gaza, and he was at war with Gilead. But just put yourself in Hazael's shoes for a second. He's king, he, he, he's, he's at war, and so, you know, the, the point of war is knock them down so they can't get back up. Who cares if you have to terrorize a few? Who cares if you have to torture a few? What matters is that we win. Extraordinary circumstances demand extraordinary measures, right? Well, maybe for us, not to God. You see, Hazael himself had no right to treat people inhumanely. Look at the language there. He He was threshing people, like grinding them to the ground. And he's held account for it. Now, Christians historically have always had a view of a just war theory. But but, but even as Christians think that, that, that there are reasons and just reasons to go to war, we've always said, but there are there are boundaries and there are lines that we do not cross. There is a dignity even awarded to our enemies. And so here we have Damascus judge for how they inappropriately went to war with Gaza or with Gilead. You see, God cares about how we treat each other. God cares about how we treat the poor. He cares how we treat a single mom. He cares how we treat the socially vulnerable. He cares how we treat our neighbors. He cares if we just ignore our neighbors or if we love our neighbors and pray for our neighbors. He actually cares. He cares how we treat our employees, how we treat those who differ in beliefs with us. He cares. Now, my guess is at this point, if you're Israel and you're sitting back and you're hearing Amos just go after all of your enemies, these other nations, if you're Israel, you're thinking, yeah, you go get them, God. Get them, get them, get them. Shovel out that judgment. They deserve it. They've treated us poorly. And then you hear the roll call in chapter 2, verse 4, of Judah. Now God says, all right, Judah, it's your turn. And Israel at this point's like, oh, I've been waiting for this for a long time. Judah, they're brothers to the south. You know, historically and even ethnically connected. And yet here now comes judgment on Judah. It must have been quiet, but they must have had a little bit of glee when they heard this roll call. Chapter 2, verse 4. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord, and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Pretty intense. Really intense. And notice, did you notice the same sort of formula of judgment, the same sort of words are applied to Judah. 
as if you're as bad as these other nations. Only there's a difference, isn't there? The difference is in the sin that they've committed. Now it's kind of their, their vertical relationship to God. The, the sins listed for Judah are religious sins. Rejection of God's word, not keeping his statutes, walking away from truth. And at this point, Israel, you could hear a pin drop. Israel is judging, or sorry, Amos, uh, God through the mouth of the prophet Amos is judging Judah, their family to the south, for religious hypocrisy. So what next? Or maybe better put, who's next? Now, Amos is written in the language of poetry. And I think this just perfectly sets up the final declaration of judgment that's coming. Have you ever just been in a room and someone made a joke and you started laughing and realized you were the butt of the joke? That's sort of what's going on here. Judgment is swirling around Israel, just checking them off. God's just kind of like, check, 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 and getting closer and closer and closer. You see, God is the roaring lion, and he's been stalking Israel, walking Israel into a spiritual trap. Did you know that male lions, when they stalk their prey, let's say a gazelle, they stalk often upwind, so the gazelle smells them and runs in the opposite direction? And the reason why is because then the gazelle runs, and then there's, in the brush, a pride of lionesses who devoured the gazelle. Just put down the, the barrier just so the gazelle thinks that she can get away, only she can't. That's Israel, isn't it? The barrier is down. Oh, yeah, this is going to be a great message of hope against my enemies. And then the gavel drops. And the bullseye of God's judgment falls squarely on them. Look at it with me. Verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteousness for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Then go up to verse 12. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. So here we see the indictment of Israel is sweeping. But unlike Judah, who is kind of judged for their religious sins. Oh, it's a double whammy for Israel, isn't it? They're just like the nations, and they're judged for how they're treating one another. They are trampling on the, on the, uh, on the poor, you know, selling their sandals to just gain economic advantage. They took advantage of the poor, verse 6. Took advantage of 
women sexually for pleasure, verse 7. Their their worship, verse 8, turned pagan. They even kind of lured the religious elite, the the Nazarites, to forsake their vows, to break their vows to God. They even told prophets, don't prophesy. I mean, under all this prosperity, under all the great times, there is spiritual rot in Israel, isn't there? And God says he's going to judge them, verse 13. Look at it. Verse 13. This, 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 this is evocative. This is terrifying. This is like the grim reaper of judgments. God says he's going to crush them in a wine press of wrath. Now, my guess is that Israel, prior to this, thought they were safe. They're God's people, right? They've got all this history. They've got some promises in the back of their pocket, right? They had their special covenantal relationship with God. They thought they were safe as God's people. And I think we need to be careful too as God's people. We we can just go, okay, judgment comes, but we got Jesus, so we're good. Judgment fell on him, so let's just... Go straight to heaven. But we got to slow down here. We can't straight shoot through Jesus and say, oh, thank God that. That is true. First Peter 4 tells us that judgment starts in the household of God. So judgment falls on God's people in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You see, what God's people didn't realize in the Old Testament, what God's people didn't realize in Israel in Amos' day, Maybe what we don't realize is what I'll call the Spider-Man principle. With great power comes great responsibility, right? I've got to get Marvel in here every once in a while. <laughs> they didn't realize that the nearer to God they got, the closer to intimacy with God they got, the greater the scrutiny and the greater the judgment that would fall. They had more presence, and so the judgment coming on them had more potency. I mean, I think at this point, Israel wishes, I wish I was Damascus. I mean, they have two sins, religious sins, false worship, and societal sins, sins of injustice. So I wonder if you came here this morning thinking, oh, if I come to church... I'll get some brownie points with God and I'll be safe. Just check on that kind of religious to-do list. Check that off. This will appease God. Or whatever that looks like in your week. If I just do X, if I just do Y, then God will be happy with me. But the Bible is clear that judgment falls on all people. For sin inside and outside the church. Now, how do I know that this is a total universal judgment? Let's just keep reading. Look at verse 14. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. 
all, and he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in the day, in the day declares the Lord. Right? That's quite the description, the poetic description, right? If you're fast, you're not fast enough. If you got, you're a great archer, you're going to run out of arrows. If you're strong, mighty, not strong enough. If you have a horse, maybe even like a Kentucky Derby winning horse, you can get on that horse, but you still can't outrun God. Maybe you're one of those people that just runs into a fight. You are just courageous. You're always looking for a fight. Oh, you will not be stout of heart. You will run naked afraid in light of God and his judgment. Here's many, many verses all describing the same reality. It's the description of the totality or universality of God's judgment in light of sin. And I think there's a reason why Amos is written in the language of poetry. I mean, he could have just used like law language. You're judged, period. Repent, period. Let's be done with it. I'm tired, period. We we think of poetry as the language of love, and it is. It's also the language of unrequited love. Poetry wants us to feel something. It wants us to feel something so that we can change our behavior and beliefs about something. And so Amos wants us to just feel the darkness for a moment, not too long, but for a moment, the darkness of judgment. Just the, the, the weakness of feeling helpless in light of God and his judgment. That God is glorious and good and perfect and we are small and sinful and tiny. God cares. And that might originally have been a really comforting thought to you, but when you really think about it, I was hoping to get you with a gotcha question. Because God caring is also a terrifying reality. Because he cares about injustice. He cares about how you live your life. He cares about how you treat people, how the things that come out of your mouth. He cares. And he's not going to just sweep it away. He's going to handle injustice fully and finally. Now, lest we kind of stay in judgment too long, I said that there is hope. And there is hope. But it's only a hint. A hint of hope. Uh, This past week, Becca Murdoch uh, sent an email. Uh, She sends out the the church email, weekly email. And so she she always attaches an encouraging verse of the the text that we're going to be preaching, and she sends it out. And so she sent an email and said, I spend hours looking for something encouraging in these two chapters. I can't find anything. (laughs) And I told her, keep looking. You're not going to find it. No, there's no explicit hope, but there is a hint of hope. And actually, there's two hints of hope. I want to point them out in closing. I skipped a section. I don't know if you noticed that. So go back to chapter 2, verse 9. Yet it was I, this is the Lord, who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and whose was strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness 
to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? The the first hint of hope in this text, it's a hint from the past. Did Did you notice? Right? It's, it's talking about God's protection and his provision in saving his people in the Exodus and in the book of Numbers. So, verse 9 talks about God destroyed the Amorites when they took possession of the, the promised land. God then brought Israel out of Egypt and sustained them in the wilderness, verse 10. And then God raised up prophets to lead them, verse 11. So Israel could look at the past and wonder, maybe, maybe, God would be gracious to them. As he was, as Amos is kind of reminding them of all of God's patience and kindness and mercy in the past, maybe God, in light of their egregious sin, maybe God would once again be patient with them and forgive them. I think he's pointing out the past in order for them to fall on their knees in repentance and call out to God in mercy. Maybe it's not, maybe they're not lost enough. Maybe it's not too late. Maybe, yet maybe, God is the sort of God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's the first hint. It's the hint from the past. But there's a better hint. There's a better hint of hope in the midst of this. And it's the hint of fire. You see, fire can also be hopeful, not just terrifying. Seven times the word fire comes up. Amos tells us that fire is coming. And fire oftentimes is the language of judgment. Think Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet fire is also not just judgment, Fire can also come on a people and is used metaphorically and prophetically and poetically to describe refinement, purification. So if you go to the New Testament, if you go to 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter writes that judgment begins in the household of God. Judgment actually comes on the church. Just like it did in the Old Testament. And yet we need to be careful here because we'd say, well, wait a minute. I know my book of Romans, and it says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. True. So then, what is the judgment talked about that falls on the church in 1 Peter? Peter already answered that, actually, earlier in his book, in chapter 1. This is what judgment looks like for the people of God. We read in chapter 1, verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, the judgment that comes on the church is not a judgment of condemnation. It's a judgment of purification. You see, fire falls on all. That's why it's listed seven times in this book of Amos. It's complete. It will fall on all of us. The question is, what sort of fire will befall you? 
the fire of condemnation or the fire of purification. Judgment comes on the church. Maybe maybe some of you have been wondering, what was God doing the last two years with all the civil unrest, with all the disunity? What in the world is God doing? I mean, I'm not a prophet, but I'll tell you exactly what God is doing. By divine revelation, he was judging the church. But I'm not being melodramatic here. God's always judging the church. He is making her precious. He is growing her up. He is purifying the church to make her a radiant offering. Isn't that what Ephesians says? Ephesians tells us that, that, that Jesus might present the church in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's what judgments are. They're trials and hardships, suffering brought on by God to us because of his loving care for us in order that we might grow up and mature. You see, hope comes by fire. But it's not the fire of condemnation for the church. It's another hope. Now, that's not, that doesn't get, explain how this happens. We read earlier, or at least Jonathan did, that actually Jesus himself picks up the language of fire in Luke chapter 12. My guess is if I did a pop quiz before you walked in and I said, why, what was the reason why Jesus came to the world, you would probably say, to save, to, to give eternal life, to, to die for sinners. But in Luke chapter 12, this is what he says. Jesus shockingly says that I came to cast a fire on earth. You want to know why Jesus came? He came to cast fire. And would that it have already been kindled. Now, what is this fire? When would it be kindled? Like, what's this in reference to? Well, it's clear. If you just read the whole chapter, if you read the context, it's clear that Jesus is pointing to his death and resurrection. He's saying that his death and resurrection would be a kindle, a fire that would divide people as they try to think through, what are we going to do with Jesus? Jesus' death and resurrection was a crisis point in which it kindled this crisis where you had to decide, what are you going to do with Jesus? You see, Jesus picks up the language of Amos because what was in front of Amos is in front of us. When the judgment comes, there's a crisis and we have to decide, do we accept the provision that God has provided in Jesus Christ to take on that judgment for us, the judgment of our sin, and put our faith and trust in him and turn to him, or will we reject that provision in light of our judgment for sin. That's the fire that Jesus lit in his death and resurrection. It's a fire that has been dividing people ever since. And so basically what Amos is telling us, what Jesus is telling us, what First Peter 4 is telling us, what pretty much the whole Bible is telling us is simply this, that God cares so much He cares so much for his creation. He cares so much for our world. He cares so much for us. And he cares so much for his holiness and his glory. He cares so much about the injustices going on in this world that he provided a way. He provided his own son. That's how much God cares. He would care so much to send his own son to take on the judgment 
for our sin that we deserve upon himself. And so, when chapter 2 ends in the book of Amos, there's sort of an existential crisis. But we, we don't know. Are God's people, will Israel repent? Will they fall and just beg God for mercy? Will they look to God and his provision given to them? The hope that one day that he would send a son to save them. We don't know what many of them did. But we do know what we can do. We can, for the first time or the millionth time, respond to Jesus and say, I believe. So does God care? The answer is yes. And it's very, very good news that he cares. Because he is remaking a world through the care that he's given to us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, I... Lord, we, we are humbled, humbled in the reality that your son loved us to the point of death. And Lord, we, we, all of us, if we knew the true horror of our sin, would be undone. And so we stand feeling for a moment the hint of judgment, but then realizing the glory, just the glory to know that we will not stand condemned because of our union with Jesus Christ. So I pray that that would be more, we would have more assurance of that reality, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that we would look to your son, look full in his wonderful face so that the things of old will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen.